feel really at home here. Is that all right? That means I can just relax and be myself. Haley said to me, ooh, Yoda's on the front row today. She meant you. Ray, Yoda, the wise one, is on the front row. Now, our paths have crossed over the years, um, Ray and myself and Paul Scanlon, who I served alongside for many years. In fact, we came down here in the late 90s to look at TV, do you remember? And uh, because you were sort of, you were leading the field in, on God Channel in those days, and we wanted to follow in your footsteps, and you taught us all we know. I remember you sending guys up to help us, and so our churches have served each other over the years. Here we are, it feels like another life we're in now. It's another life. And I'm, I'm functioning in a similar role to Ray in that I'm off the local church completely now. Still my home is the Bradford Church. Um, but I, I, my heart is to help build church. I love the church of Jesus Christ. It is the answer to the needs of our world. And the older I get, the more I believe it more passionately. So if I can help pastors, local church pastors, who are doing the muck and the bullets of day-to-day -day helping reach people for Jesus and build them into a great community, that's my heart's desire. So seeing those lost puppies in the corner, we were in Berlin, weren't we? <clears throat> so they're in this sort of sat in the corner, like two lost puppies. Now everybody else is chatting. I just went across and said, come on, guys. They need help. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so awesome. So it's great to be with you. Um, as Dave said, I've been in ministry uh, more years than I want to count now, but a lot. And um, it's been my, my passion and my, my privilege, I guess, to be part of leading um, a church that became influential. It was called Abundant Life Church originally. Now it's called Life Church as we've passed on to the next generation. Um, was principal of the Bible school there, did lots of stuff. But, you know, all, all that stuff at one level needs to sit under a greater achievement, which is that I love Jesus first. I've got a great wife. Got four adult kids, seven grandkids. And uh, the older I get, too, they're becoming my primary congregation <laughs> in terms of wanting to see them thrive and flourish and go on to the next level. So I'm a family man, family of God, as well as natural family, and it's a joy to be with you today. As um, I thought about this morning, I felt God remind me of some important truths that I want to share with you. <clears throat> but just walking in here has confirmed another thing I thought which is this is a really weird Sunday of the year. I mean, it's weird, isn't it? It's the first time you've come today and found it all dressed up for Christmas. So immediately you slip into Christmas mode. When we kind of forget the lost, you know, forget the people, let's think about turkey, let's just chill, let's party. It's weird. So your mind goes into the Christmas festive events and like your church, like ours, we'll have a full program of those, I'm sure. Uh, this is all testimony to things you're going to be doing to reach people in this Christmas season. So Christmas gets into your head and kind of all that God has said to you this year so far, if you're not careful, it's going to go out of your head. But God has been speaking a word to you. And if you could track back, you would find strands of God's now word to you that is to strengthen you and build you and take you on into this next season which in your minds all starts in January. So it's like December, <sighs> Pastor Ray next week, oh, well, that'll be a laugh. We'll chill out. I want to encourage you strongly, do not switch off 
from what God is saying and doing because it's Christmas. I find that churches do it all the time. Sort of, it's almost like we, we stop doing what we did because it's now Christmas. Don't do it. What an opportunity we have this month to touch people with the love of Christ, to model something about the true meaning of Christmas and all that goes with it. As I've prayed into today and talked at length with uh, Dave and Faye last night over dinner, I feel God wants me to sort of set you up for next year. You see, there will be a now word from God for you for the year. There will be a theme that God leads you into, which will be fresh, which will be fresh bread. It'll be like a fresh spring of water. It'll, if you can receive it and enter into it fully, as your pastors lead you into it, you're gonna, it's going to be awesome. But I want you to give them a gift, even before you know what that word is. And the gift I want you to give them is your spirit of agreement. I believe that one of the biggest things, the best things that ye, you can bring to help your local church and its leadership at any point in time is your spirit of agreement. That part of you that comes and says, I'm in. Yes. Let's do this together. You say, well, I don't know what it is yet. Well, what do you know, Steve, that we don't know? Is it going to cost us? Oh, it always costs. Costs us time, costs us our life. But our lives are his. So the cost's always worth paying. You know, some years ago, one of the uh, tasks that I got to do because of my building background professionally was to project manage um, a new development on our campus up in Bradford. So I was chartered building surveyor before I was in ministry. So I was the obvious guy on the team to deal with architects and all that jazz and the builders. And I remember this day when the phone rang and the receptionist said, oh, the architect's here and he says he's got the contract for you to sign. I thought, this is a good day because we'd been planning this building for three or four years. Uh, it was an extension we were doing. It was a couple of million quid. Uh, we'd, we'd had a lot of problems with planners and stuff along the way. But today we were signing the contract, which meant it was definitely going to happen. So he comes up to my office, wanders in, sits down, shakes me heartily by the hand. And then I think to myself, he's not carrying anything. I said, I thought you were bringing the contract. He says, oh, it's coming. And suddenly into my office walked this young lad from his office carrying three great boxes. Each one was sort of bigger than a, a, a box of photocopier paper. It was like staggered in and dropped them on my desk with a big bang. And there were three of these contracts. Each one was that big, literally. And it separated, so it went, doof, one for you, doof, one for the builder, doof, one for us. Sign. And I looked at this pile of paper. And all you could see was the top sheet, which said, you know, sign here, sort of thing. And I think, I said, now I know why I pay you such a lot of money. I am trusting you that everything in this contract is right. He says, oh, yeah. Every plan is in there. Every piece of building material is costed. And it's all in there. All the um, terms and conditions, what happens about payments, what happens if something goes wrong, it's all in there. So, okay. So I signed the top of each three and forget about it completely. Because within a relatively short 
time the building work starts. So my joy every morning was to drive into the car park and there's hoardings up and there's guy in high-vis jackets and, you know, plastic hats and they think, yeah, we're on track. About three quarters of the way into the build, which was a 10-month build, one day I drove on the site, it was quiet. Um, not much activity this morning. Go to my office, phone rings, receptionist says, it's the architect. I think, okay, put him through. He says, Steve, you sat down? I said, yeah, what's, what's the problem? Well, he said, um, the builder's gone bust. I said, oh, I thought it was quiet on the site today. <laughs> not much happening. He says, no, he says, they're not, they're not coming back. He says, last night, that was it. Drew a line, they've gone bust. Then I go into panic mode. It's like, oh my Lord. We're three quarters of the way in. It was watertight, but there's wires hanging out everywhere. There's just unfinished. And my mind began to think, oh my Lord, what happens now? I'm going to have a, you know, I'm, I'm starting to melt down and ask all these questions. And he said, whoa, whoa, he says, calm down, calm down. Do you remember when you signed that contract? You, you know, that big pile of paper. I said, oh yeah. He says, that's now going to save your life. And the long, you know, short version of a long story is that contract did save our life. In it were terms and conditions that empowered various people to do certain things, to bring other contractors in, to supervise stuff, and we didn't miss a beat and we didn't lose money. And it was like, yes, thank you, Jesus. As I was thought about today, I was reminded of that incident. You see, that contract, that agreement, saved our life. I want to suggest to you that as you enter into next year and as a church you determine we're going to build God's house here at King's. We're going to build in this community. We're going to be Jesus' address here. You need some kind of terms of agreement to make sure that you build well. I'm not suggesting you have a big pile of paper and you all sort of sign it particularly. But it got me thinking about the principle that if you're going to build well and build securely and build on God's terms, unless we agree some stuff, it won't happen. Because we're all humans who think we know best. And we all have opinions. And unless we're willing to come together on some clear terms and say, this is how we will build, and these are the people I'm going to build with, and ultimately it's for Christ's glory, and it's so that this city can be reached, it ain't going to happen. Because our flesh will get in the way and we'll scurry off doing our own thing. And we'll end up doing one-man bands and lone ranger stuff. But God wants us to do it together. You know, back in the Old Testament, there's a fantastic story about a guy called Nehemiah. Have you all heard of Nehemiah? Some of you will know the story, some may not, but Nehemiah was raised up by God to rebuild Jerusalem when its walls were all broken down after the Babylonian exile. Basically what had happened is God's people had forsaken him, had not kept his word, and so because of that, they'd ended up in trouble, and God allowed their enemies to take them into captivity for 70 years, long time. But at the end of that period... As God promised, a certain king was raised up who said, those who want can go back and rebuild. 
So a first group went back and rebuilt the temple. Um, a few of them had stayed back in Babylon, which was included Nehemiah. And on, on a particular day, Nehemiah met some guys who'd come from Jerusalem, where it was still in a pretty rickety state. And I want to read you a few verses of what happened to him. Because I think that Nehemiah, when he rebuilt Jerusalem, has a few principles to teach us about how we've got to build the church in this next season. Because I think in his building team, there was a sense of agreement. And if we can capture those same terms, it's going to strengthen us for what we want to do next year. The book starts like this. He says that guys came from Jerusalem and they said to me, those who've survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem are broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, he says, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, and off he goes into this long prayer. Interesting. Nehemiah, when he heard that God's city was in trouble and disgrace, he responded with prayer and with fasting. He was kind of moved. He wept. You see... Where is God's address today? Back then it was Jerusalem. Back then it was the temple in Jerusalem. And if you wanted to go find the God of Israel, you had to go on a journey, literally, and you went to Jerusalem. And the people of God did that over and over again. And when they got there, they discovered it's still a heap of rubble. That's why they were in trouble and disgrace. God's name was in disgrace because his address was a shambles. Now that was all a picture which points forward to where God lives today. And by his Holy Spirit, he lives in you, and he lives in me. The book of Peter says that we are like living stones being built together into a temple in which God lives by his Holy Spirit. So actually, this is God's address here today. So when people say now, well, where's the God of the Christians? We say, pleased to meet you. Because it's true, he lives in you, lives in me. And when we do life together in a way which glorifies him and which honors him, that speaks of God into our community. Now, if our relationships and lives are therefore a shambles, we're in trouble and disgrace. We're giving him a bad name in the same way as the physical Jerusalem did in the Old Testament. Now, that's the parallel I want to draw for you. From Nehemiah rebuilding the walls, it's a picture of us building God's house today. And the first thing that I see as um, it's kind of an unwritten term of agreement that the builders of those, worlds, of, of those walls had was simply this. That when they heard about the problem, they felt something. I would suggest to you, if you're going to build this church to its next level, which you are, the first thing you've all to agree on is, we all feel what God feels. Because if you don't feel it, you're going to do a squat all about it. That's kind of how it is. You have to feel it. 
That's what Nehemiah did. He, he heard. God's address is a, a disgrace. That's not right. And I think that the, the tears that he shed and the reason he fasted and he prayed like he did was because he, he felt what God felt. What do you feel about this place? Or should I say these people? You now, what do you feel about kings? What do you feel about Newport? What do you feel about the area you live and work in? Because as you look at it, You've got to look at those potential living stones. Every single person is a potential living stone in the quarry face of this world. And our job is to quarry them out and bring them together to build this wonderful thing we call the church of the living God. Well, you ain't going to do it unless you feel it. Say, hang on a minute, Steve. We're not emotional creatures. You know, we're, we're spiritual. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. I don't mean feel it just in your emotions. I mean feel it in your spirit. It's spirit to spirit, this stuff. If you can watch the news impassively, you're not quite feeling what God feels. If you can walk past poor people, homeless people, and not feel something, you're not quite yet feeling what God fully feels. If you can hear stories of abuse and dysfunction and pain, and it just we're like water off a duck's back. We're still not quite feeling what God feels because God has great compassion. Remember, Jesus looked at the crowds and he said he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, aimless, lost, wandering. And that's kind of what human beings are like outside of Christ. It's where we all once were, isn't it? You've got to feel it. I say, well, my personality is not a feely type. I'm just a logical type. I'll join the club, so am I. But I've had to learn. Every believer that's indwelt by the Holy Spirit can feel what God feels. We've just got to be willing to open up, to allow his spirit to lead us, to give us his heart, to give us his eyes, to see people as he sees them. So that when you look across the congregation, you go, oh God, what an awesome group of people. Every single one saved by grace. Woof, look at the stars in this room. And other people will look at it and go, oh, what a bunch of misfits. Oh, dearie me. Look at all the dysfunction in this room. You know, it's, a, it's an issue of perspective. The truth is, we are all misfits. We are all dysfunctional. We were all lost in sin and shame. We're all damaged goods. But when God looks at us, he sees the treasure. He looks at you and says, oh, you were worth going to the cross for. When he was on the cross, he says, for the joy set before him, he endured the pain. And you were part of the joy. I was part of the joy. I think to build great church, we have to feel what God feels. And that is, if I can put it simply this way, it's, it's kind of like an agreement we have. That Nehemiah felt this was very clear because the next day in chapter 2 it tells us he went to work after he'd been done all this praying and he worked for the king. He was in royal service and he was one of the cupbearers of the king. Well, the king has smiley people around him, right? You know, he doesn't want grumpy people or dysfunctional. They want smiley people. But Nehemiah this day was not smiley. And I'm sure that could have got him into serious trouble. But it says this. He says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, 
I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Nehemiah, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Now he says, I was afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. And he begins to explain to the king why he's sad. I think when we feel what God feels, it affects our, our spiritual countenance. It moves us to prayer. It moves us to fasting. It moves us to want to do something about it because it issues from the heart of God within us. If you're sat here thinking, well, I don't feel anything particularly. My prayer for you this morning would be that God will give you his eyes. That he'll give you his heart. That if you will dare to open up yourself, that his Holy Spirit will give you a compassion that you've not naturally had before. God does it. I've seen it so many times. People who are hard, bitter, damaged. So they've closed down emotionally and spiritually. And Jesus gradually washes all the crap off and brings them to a place where they can once again feel what he feels, cry genuine tears, feel people's pain, get alongside them and build them into a community that says, this is where God is. Want to meet Jesus? Come to my church with me. It only happens if we all agree the reason we're doing this is because we all feel what God feels. Not what I feel, not my preference. As soon as I do that, it becomes a consumeristic thing. Well, I, I come because there's a nice kids' church. I come because it's decent coffee. I come because my mates are here. I come because they have more Christmas trees than you can count. There's, there's reasons why you come. But I pray that you will come and serve and give and do what you do simply because... You've caught God's heart for what he wants you to do together and wants you to build together. As I kept reading down the Nehemiah story, basically he is sent off to Jerusalem by the king and he's, he's loaded up with all the resources that he needs to do the job. So when he first gets there, he has a little recce and decides how it's going to work out. And then you get to chapter 3. And chapter 3 of Nehemiah is one of those chapters in the Bible that you're tempted to skip. Now, if you're honest, there's quite a few of them. Because some chapters of the Bible are long and boring or a bit complicated. So you think, oh, pass on. You know. well, it's one of those chapters because all it is is a list of names. And it's actually the list of names of the people that actually built the wall. It starts at one point, and it goes around in a great big circle and tells you this guy built next to this guy, built next to this guy, built next to this guy. So, you know, three verses in, you think, oh, jump on to chapter four. Don't do it. Slow down a bit, because chapter three has another thing to teach me about this agreement they had between the builders. And it was simply this. It seems to me there was an agreement that every man and his dog would get involved in the building. Now I admit there's no mention of a dog, okay? But I look at it this way. If I was going to renovate city walls, I would want a certain kind of person. Strong people. People who understood 
how to cut stone, masons. People could mix the concrete or whatever it else was they used in those days. But a very certain kind of person I'd want on the walls. But when I read who built this wall, none of them are there. It tells me that the wall was built by rulers, merchants, shopkeepers, priests. I mean, what do priests know about building walls? Um, verse 8, it says, Hananiah, one of, the, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section. A goldsmith. You know, detailed work. You can just imagine this guy who's particular with his hands and, you know, specs on, doing the detailed work, and now he's out there hammering rocks and stirring cement and doing all this stuff. It's not his natural fit, but he's in there doing it. After that, he says this. He says, and next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs. Perfume makers. I mean, I want the wall to stand up, not smell nice. <laughs> this is important stuff. But you've got goldsmiths. Keep reading on. Verse 12, it says that Shalom, who was ruler of half a district, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. You see? Even back in those days, it was the girls as well as the guys. It wasn't just a you know, male bastion. This It was men, women. It was rich, poor, merchants, priests, rulers, all in there. Love it. All involved. You see, <clears throat> once you've felt what God feels about building this church, that is going to move you to want to do something about it. And the next thing you've got to make sure is that your spirit of agreement does not make you picky. It's not like, well, when the thing that I'm particularly qualified to do comes up, I'll offer to serve in church. That isn't what happened here. They were so moved by God, they just all got stuck in. All of them got stuck in. Irrespective of whether it was their primary skill, their essential heart was, we're just going to serve. And you know as well as me, servanthood is the heart of what builds great church. Servanthood is right at the core. They're all involved. But then I spotted something else about where they were involved. So it tells us in verse 10 that a guy called Jedediah, some great names in here, uh, made repairs opposite his house. Hmm, interesting. So he built right opposite where he lived. Then it comes up again. In fact, it comes up a lot. In verse 23, it says that Benjamin and Hashub made repairs in front of their house. Uh, down at 28, the priest made repairs each in front of his own house. Then Zadok, son of Imma, made repairs opposite his house. I began to get the message. They built where they lived. Question, where does building church really begin? Because it, does it doesn't start here. Building church isn't about putting a great service on on a Sunday. This serves the, the real work of building, which starts where I live. Starts in my work street, starts in, the, in my workplace, in the street where I live, or the classroom where you go to school. That's where it starts, because the next building material, people, are there. The next living stone is there that I have to befriend, that I've got to give one of these wonderful gifts to hear with an invitation on. It's 
that's where building church starts. Right where I live and do life. One other thing jumped at me from this, cha- this, this particular boring chapter. And that was that the most frequently used word in the chapter is the word next. Nothing to do with the retailer. Other retailers are available, you understand. But it's next. It's so-and-so built next to so-and-so, next to so-and-so, next to so-and-so, next to him, next to her. In other words, there were no isolated builders. There's nobody off doing their own thing. There's no gaps in the wall. Because everybody built next to someone. Somebody on this side, somebody on that side. What a great picture of how we have to build church. You see, once you've felt what God feels, it will move you to get involved. But God wants you to get involved right where you live, but next to those that you're in commitment with here, in the spiritual family of doing this church. It's not about you doing your thing. It's about us building his thing. And that means doing it together. It means not getting too picky about whether or not I'm particularly gifted or skilled at a thing. If we see a need, let's rush to fill it. If we see a gap in the wall, let's be first there to do what we can to contribute. We can only only do so much. We've only got so much time, so much money, and we've all got definite skills and limitations. But if we've got a heart that says, come on, let's build this, let's do this together, what a gift that is to one another. What a gift to the leaders who have heard from God about where you have to go in the next season. It's a precious, precious thing. So as I look around this little book, I see that there were some unwritten terms of agreement. The first one was, we all agree. We feel what God feels. Second was, we all agree. We're going to get involved. And if it needs doing, we'll be in there. We're going to start. We're going to be involved right where we live, next to one another. Let's all get involved in building church together. I kept reading on. An amazing thing happened in Nehemiah's story. It tells us in chapter 5 that the walls went up in just 52 days. That's less than two months. 52 days. Of course, we don't know what state they were in, but it was clearly absolutely out of this world because even their opponents looked on and had something to say about it. And what they had to say about it was this. It says, when all our enemies heard about this, and all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their confidence because they realized this work had been done with the help of our God. You see, if when you, when you feel what God feels and you get stuck in, people look on and go, how have King's Church done that? How has Jesus Cares grown like it has? How's that happened? Come on. You know, they must have a rich benefactor. You know, some, somebody's fudging the numbers. It can't possibly be that many hampers, can it? And the cynic kicks in. But no, people have got to stop eventually and say, the only reason that's happening is because God is for them. 
And we want people to look at our churches and look at our ministry expressions, to look at the changed lives and go, I don't understand how that's happened. Maybe there is a God. It's part of our testimony because there was a third thing we all agreed to do. It was simply this. We all agreed we would respond to God's word as one. There is always a word that God has to a church. There's always a word God has to you in your life. There's, there's things God is saying to you, the scripture you're reading. There are emphases and themes that you're, you, you feel God is working with you on and deepening you in. Well, it's, it works personally and collectively. One of the first things I like to ask when I visit a church for the, new for the first time is, what's God saying to you all right now? I ask them, what's your vision and what's God saying? Because in those two things, you learn pretty much all the important stuff about a church. You've got to know where you're going, what you're building, what your vision is, and you've got to know what's God saying. Because that explains why we're doing what we're doing right now. And when God speaks specifically to a church, it's a little bit like God speaking to Nehemiah and saying, go rebuild the walls. I think we can get behind it. We can feel it. We can get involved in it. And we can celebrate the success together. And God gets the glory because we all responded to God's word as one. And if you can have that agreement amongst yourselves, God's going to do some stuff through you beyond your wildest dreams. Because people are going to say, King's Church? Nah. Wow. Or maybe their God is bigger than I thought. Maybe their God has done something greater than just the physical and human capacity of their people. In chapter 8 of Nehemiah's story, this principle dawns on them. It kind of dawns on them that because we all said we'd do it God's way, God's blessed us. Now, I would suggest to you that churches generally are pretty good at responding to very specific project words from God. And these, were, were, these walls were a, a project word. It, so it was like, rebuild the walls, got it done in 52 days. After that, then there was another word about repopulating the city and all the stuff that went on after it. But we're pretty good at words like that as churches. So if somebody you know, comes up with an idea for a new ministry... And maybe that ministry needs a minibus. And you all decide together, yeah, we feel this is right. We're all going to get involved. Come on. We feel God is saying to us, dig deep and buy a minibus. It's going to cost 25 grand. Okay. Well, we're going to have a gift day and we, we dig deep and we give money. And over a, before long, we arrive one day to church and outside there is the minibus. All with the signage on. And we all go, yes, didn't we do well? Because we all felt what God felt, we all decided to involve, and we've all responded to God's word as we understood it to be, and it's done. And we give each other a great big pat on the back and move on to the next thing. Well, I think the walls of Jerusalem were like that. It was kind of a, a project word. Once it was done, it was done. But what God's people slowly began to realize is there is another word. There's a higher word an enduring word that we have to all agree to keep if we're going to truly build God's city, if we're going to build God's house in our generation. And that word is the Bible. 
to live according to the scripture, the unchanging, timeless word of God. Now, it's interesting, when you get to chapter 8, the people begin to realize this. The reason we were in trouble and in Babylon is because we brought God's word. So we ended up in trouble. Now that we're doing it right, God's with us, we're feeling it, we're involving in it. It's not just about doing the projects, is it? No. It's about raising your kids God's way. It's about doing your business God's way. It's about handling your thoughts God's way. Hmm. It's about dealing with conflict God's way. It's about having God's attitude to money and wealth and possessions and people. And In fact, there is a word from God that governs everything about our lives. And if we will all agree to keep that word, wow, what could God build here? The people in Nehemiah's day suddenly realized that. And this is what happened in chapter 8. It says, all the people came together as one. And they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law. On the first day of the seventh month, Ezra brought the book out, opens it. All the people listen attentively. If you keep reading down, it tells us that it did that all day long. Then they come back the next day, and it starts again. And on the second day, it says that he opened the book... He was on like a high pulpit. And when he opened the book, it says, Ezra praised the Lord, and all the people lifted their hands and said, Amen, Amen. And they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. He hadn't read anything yet. All they'd done was open it. But they were realizing this word, this word is what we live by. This word is our bread. This word is the key to our success. This is the key to us being God's people in his appointed location at that time. You see, there is a higher word. Now, spot this. In verse 1, it said this. All the people came together, and they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book. That is not what happens in most churches most Sundays. Most Sundays, it's exactly the opposite way around. The priest, the preacher, comes with his Bible and says, Oh, you lot, listen to me. Uh, you're listening? Come on, are you listening? Why are your friends here? Bring your family next week. Come on, you monkeys. You should be listening to the... You need to come and listen to the word of God. That isn't what was happening here. It says, the people told Ezra, Oh, Ezra, open your flipping Bible. Come on. Teaches God's word and ways. The energy came from grassroots, from people beginning to realize we need to know how, God, how to live as God's people. And I tell you, in this day and age, we need to know how to be God's people with such skill and such wisdom like never before. The issues we face are more complex than ever. The dilemmas we have, the need to stand our ground on some stuff is clearer than ever. We need to know what God says. How awesome. If when Pastor Dave or Ray or whoever's preaching comes up and opens the Bible and you all, you all went, come on, <laughs> preach it. You know, teach us how to live. You know, that's, that, that's the spirit that's got to come from the congregation to the, to the teacher. And when that spirit's there, God will give things to the teacher that he would not otherwise give to him. You get, you get stuff out of a good communicator by being a great receiver that you wouldn't get if you sit there passively. 
Well, they, then these people had understood that. I want to urge upon you, as your spiritual leaders take you through into this next season of what God's got for you as kings, it's so important that you come with an attitude that says, Lord, we all feel what you feel. Come on, help us to feel it, Lord. We're all committed. We're in agreement. We're all going to be involved in making this thing happen. But God, higher than that, and supporting all that is this truth. We all agree we're going to respond to God's word as one. Not just a project, his living word, his enduring word. We're going to help each other raise our families God's way. We're going to help each other do our money God's way. All those things that make life rich and Christ-centered, we're going to do together. After this happened, of course, the people heard all this law and started to do it. And in verse 17 of that chapter, it says that they kept a particular festival, and it had never been kept like that ever since the beginning. It was so awesome. And verse 17 says, and their joy was very great. See, when you do it God's way, joy comes. Joy comes. And I want to be in a church that's full of joy. This world's devoid of it. Trying to find joy. But how great when they meet you and they meet me. We've got the same issues in life as they have. We're navigating the same issues and problems and stuff. But we're doing it with Jesus at the core. And there's joy in the house. There's an ability to find grace for our help You know, in, in times of need. There's the joy of the Lord that sustains us. It's a fantastic thing. And I believe this church can be characterized by a joy which is not, it's not frivolous. It's not like a comedian doing his thing like you get, might get you know, on the TV. It's, it's the joy of the Lord, which is a, it's a deep strength. It's a reservoir of God's life and love that you draw on, even when you're going through the worst of times. Well, in the last few years, I've had a couple of health issues. And one was I had a cancer diagnosis three years ago, uh, prostate cancer, which a lot of guys get. And when I got the diagnosis, it sent me into a total spin of, this doesn't happen. It's not supposed to happen. A servant of God, what's going on here? It's not right. It's wrong. Can't be right. Anyway, it was right. Uh, I had to navigate the thing. I had a surgery. And, you know, God willing, I am completely and utterly free of cancer. However, in the midst of it, I got to what I could only describe as a, I was in a mini hell. You know, you, you go through your, your, your angst, and me and my family and some friends were carrying this, and we're praying it, and we're, you're waiting for test results, and you're waiting for to go to the hospital, all this stuff. You know, I feel for people on the waiting list, list like never before now. If you know there's things inside you that could kill you, you just want it out. And some numpty's got you in a queue. You just want, you just want it out now. <laughs> anyway, that's another story. But in this sort of mini hell, I was, I was sent to God like never before. And what I discovered was there was joy in hell. Weird, but it's true. When you can, get, you can get to your worst point, you can go through all sorts of rubbish in life. But when you're walking it with God, deep down in your spirit, you still know it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. God rules. God's good. God's sovereign. His ways are higher than ours. He knows. 
Now, when we feel what God feels, and when we're willing to involve in what he's building, when we're willing to respond to his word as one, there'll be joy in the house, which is joy unspeakable. It's hard to explain, but joy which in itself is so winsome, so awesome, people will not be able to resist it. Now, in Nehemiah's story, they were so convinced that they'd got to make an actual agreement, you know, sign a piece of paper to keep God's word again. And that's what they did. And you can read it yourself, but in chapter 9, verse 38 is the key line where he says, in view of all this, we're going to make a binding agreement and keep people from the whole nation literally signed on the dotted line to say, we're going to keep God's word. We're going to keep God's word. An awesome thing happened. And God blessed them. So, as you move into your next season, I want to urge upon you to be willing to bring your spirit of agreement to the party. To say, I agree. We're doing this because God feels it. We feel what God feels. I agree. I'm going to get involved. I'm going to get involved in this because it's God's project. I'm going to do whatever needs doing. Uh, I agree. We're all going to respond to God's word as one. We agree. I think if you do that, what God can do in this place is yet to be written. Now, you're a church like my home church. You've got a bit of history. That's because you had a charismatic senior pastor for many years who put you on the map. I had the same with Paul Scanlon, great communicator. We were a preaching center, did conferences and stuff, much like you did. They put us on the map. But you know, there's a sense in which as we move from season to season as churches, God takes us into new expressions. He builds on what one generation has done. And we cannot bask in the glory of the past. And it's for my generation, Ray's generation, I know we're agreed on this, it's for us to cheer on our spiritual sons and daughters, which you are, and to say, come on, build the church of God. Build it strong. Bring your spirit of agreement to the party. Get stuck in. Feel what he feels. And even if it ends up looking a bit different to what I did in my day, that doesn't matter. What matters is that Jesus is fleshed out. His address is truly bringing honor to his name. I want to close by making one final point. This unwritten agreement that they had, that we will all feel what God feels, we'll all involve, we'll all respond to God's word as one. I think there's a fourth agreement I see between some of these people. And it was this. It was an agreement to zealously protect the first three. See, once you've said, we're all in, we need to start, we, we have to protect that. It's here again. <laughs> we, have to, we have to zealously protect what we've agreed. You know, it's a, it's a fact of life. Every covenant you enter, every agreement you enter gets tested. Every contract you make gets tested. Just think about your marriage, if you're married. It gets tested. Think about... Your church commitment gets tested. 
And it's as you work the test through, it deepens loyalty and, and conviction and certainty. And, oh, this is the, a good thing we're doing together. And exactly the same thing happened for Nehemiah. After this great high point, he went back to Babylon. The report to the king, spent a few years there. Probably about 13 years went by. And then he decided, I'm going to go back and see how they're all doing. And towards the end of the book, he comes back. And he comes back with the same attitude he left. He comes back still feeling what God feels, still being willing to get involved, still being willing, wanting to respond to God's word. He came back with that attitude. And what he found was some of them had started to slip. And he spotted, hang on a minute, it's the Sabbath today. How come there's some trading going on? We agreed we'd keep God's word. We're not supposed to trade on the Sabbath. So he had to correct a few people and sort a few things out. He looked around the temple and discovered that one of the rooms that was supposed to keep all the tithes and offerings that the people brought, that the priests lived off, it was full of junk, somebody else's stuff. He's like, what's going on here? And he discovered that the priests, had, some of them had, had to go back and work the land because tithes and offerings weren't being brought in at the level they previously had been, slipping again. It's like, whoa, this isn't right. He cleared the room out of all the junk. He got the priests back, you know, corrects things. The straw that brought the camels back for him was that as he wandered around Jerusalem, he began bumping into kids who were not speaking Hebrew. It's like, what language is that? It wasn't a language he understood. In choirs, it was a language of Amnon or Ashdod or one of the other surrounding nations. And he's like, what's going on? We, we made an agreement that we would not intermarry with the surrounding nations because it was doing that before which had created a generation who then wanted to worship the gods of those nations that led us into trouble. It's happening again. So he says in verse 23 of the last chapter, in those days I saw men of Judah who'd married women from Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab, and half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. They didn't know how to speak God's language. What would you have done about it? Well, this is what he did in verse 25. He says, I rebuked them. And I called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and I pulled out their hair. <laughs> and he says, I made them take an oath in God's name. How do you make someone take an oath? Only with an arm up their back or a sword to their throat. There was something going on here. <laughs> yeah, that's true. He says, I made them take an oath in God's name saying, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons. And so it goes on. He got tamping mad. He, 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 he was protective of, of God's community, of God's reputation. He was still feeling what God feels. See, the truth is, in our humanity, we, we, we can, we're good for a great push. And then we go, ah. And it's in the good times, when joy has come and we've celebrated, we can begin to let things slip. I want to encourage you. Make a fourth term of agreement that you have to be, we will protect our fundamental agreement that we feel what God feels, 
We're going to respond to his word as one and involve on the back of that. That means sometimes you might have to have an interesting conversation. Sometimes you have to be willing to see someone who's drifting and go and get your hand on the shoulder and say, hey, come on. That, that behavior is not really appropriate, is it, for a child of God? Come on. Come on, that, that, that language doesn't fit. What are you doing messing about with that crowd again? Come on, that's not good company for you. Are we willing to be our brother's keeper? Are we willing to encourage and provoke one another to, to, to stay on track? Because in these politically correct days we live in, people are not. They're scared to death to dare to tell anybody else what to do. It's actually worse in some of the nations of Europe than it is in Britain where nobody dare tell anybody what to do because who am I to tell you what to do? <sighs> the word of God that we agree to live by says, come on, let's provoke one another to love and good works. Let's be our brother's keeper. If, if I'm going off track, please tell me. Let that be your heart. Say to one another, if you see me slipping, you know that I've agreed I'm not going to touch the bottle anymore. If you see me drifting, for goodness sake, look me in the eye and slap me or something. Have people around you, covenant brothers and sisters who will speak the truth in love to you. That's what the family of God's all about. I believe God's got a great future for you. This church feels like Life Church in Bradford. Salt of the earth people. People who love God. Know they're saved by grace. Know they couldn't make it without him. I think that's the raw materials. Those are the building blocks of great churches. Great churches are people who feel what God feels right where he's placed them. Who've decided, I'm going to get involved. That means time, money, all the rest of it. I'm just going to get involved at whatever level is appropriate for me. I'm going to respond to God's word. Come on, shall we do it together? Let's do it together. Let's all agree we're going to respond to God's word as one. And if we see each other slipping, we resolve. We will be our brother's keeper so that we honor those building terms of agreement. Amen? Let's just pray together. I want to lead you in a prayer as a church family. And I'll hand to Dave to just close things off and see if anybody wants to meet Jesus today. But as a church family first, can I ask you just in the quietness of your heart to ask Jesus to give him your ears, his ears, sorry, his eyes, his heart. Father, we are here before you and we pray by your spirit. Help us to feel what you feel. Help us to have the compassion of heaven. Help us to see beyond the exterior that people project right to their heart. To see the human being, the hurting soul. Help us to feel what you feel, Lord. God, help us to feel what you feel about this church and its future. Help us to feel what you feel about the people we do life with. Jesus, help us. Lord, as we feel, we will respond. And we say to you right now together, we all agree 
We're going to get involved in building your house here. We're going to live according to your word and ways. We're going to be our brother's keeper because this is not our house. It's your house. In Jesus' name. Amen.